Live from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, well, not today, sunny California. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone Show. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Rob Starr, and uh, this week is our Ag Show, so Mr. Chris Davey is off tonight. And actually, that's not the reason he's off. He's off because his daughter came home from Florida and bringing her intended. So I guess he's going to... Uh, have a good one-on-one with him and make sure that he's good enough for his daughter. Anyway, uh, Chris, uh, if I don't hear hear from you tomorrow, I guess I won't see you on the 6 o'clock news if you do something bad to him, but uh, hope he's a good guy. Anyway, yeah. Uh, uh, so today is our act show, and just so everybody knows, Mr. Mike Barron is off, uh, who, my best friend, Mikeypedia, and uh, he's enjoying uh, some time off, uh, well-deserved, and uh, he'll be back in a couple weeks, and uh, we hope him, uh, we hope he's having a great time and uh, relaxing and not doing anything and not looking at his computer or doing work, uh, just enjoying uh, enjoying life. So um, we'll see Mike in a, in a couple weeks back. Anyway, tonight, as I said, is our Ag Show, uh, but I just want to make two quick announcements, uh, some upcoming events that are happening locally. Uh, at the Western Municipal Water District, uh, they're having an event at 450 East Alessandro Boulevard. It's their 12th annual, and actually it's their last that they're going to have, Earth Night in the Garden. And it's a great event. They have over almost 2,000 people show up uh, for the kids. They got Ribbit the Frog. Uh, they have Miss Ladybug, who I love. She's really nice. She's going to release 75,000 ladybugs. And I always wanted to know how they know when they buy them that they're getting 75000 They just throw them in a little box and give it to her. Uh, I guess maybe they do it by weight, but uh, I don't know. I always wondered, they pay for all of that, and are they really getting the, the 75000 Anyway, they're going to have Drippy. The water drip is going to be there, and uh, Mother Nature. And Mother Nature still looks good after all these years hanging around. She's got to be hundreds of years, millions of years old, but uh, she looks pretty good at these events. Anyway, that's going to happen again tomorrow between the hours of 3 and 7. And it's again at 450 East Alessandro Boulevard in the city of Riverside. And it's the Earth Night in the Garden presented by Western Municipal Water District. And on Sunday, we're going to be, and come down and visit us because we're going to be there. And we're going to give away uh, some little goodies to everybody who comes there. Uh, on Sunday, uh, Chris and I are going to be at an event called Sustainable Claremont. That's going to be at downtown Claremont Village from 9 a.m. in the morning till 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And they got everything sustainable that you could ever think of that's going to be there. It's a great event. They've been doing it for years. So uh, please plan to come and have some fun. Bring the kids to both events. They're, they're very exciting. It's all free. Uh, and you get lots of free goodies while you're there. So uh, uh, please please join everybody. Anyway, I hope we have uh, Mr. Paul and Miss Inge from our micro-irrigation group. Are you guys on the phone? Good evening. Good, Good. evening. Yes, we are. Oh, great, yes, great, great. Excellent. Oh, I love that, that straight answer. <laughs> anyway, I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> yes, we are. Okay. Okay, okay. We're here, we're here with bells on. Oh, okay. I know that. You always are. And you guys just blow me away with your knowledge, and I'm very proud to, to work with you guys and uh, turn it over to you for the rest of the show until we get to commercial time. So uh, take it away. Thanks, Rob. Uh, appreciate the introduction. Uh, tonight we have a really exciting show. We've got uh, two uh, very special guests. Our first guest tonight uh, is one of the foremost uh, authorities on weather and atmospheric rivers. So I know that some may be uh, not as familiar with atmospheric rivers. We're going to learn about them and how uh, how important they are to, to us in, in a variety of ways. And our second guest, uh, editorial and journalistic viewpoint on the West and the uh, certainly in California, 
on all water, uh, all, all all matters regarding water. So, uh, Inky, would you be uh, do the honor and introduce us to our first guest? Thanks. Um, uh, it's a real pleasure to introduce Dr. Marty Ralph. He is the director of the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes at UCSD's Scripps Institute of Oceanography. Paul and I uh, heard him speak at the recent CII conference in uh, February, and we're in for a real treat. He's kind of the rock star of weather. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Dr. Ralph. Hey, uh, nice to be here. Right. Well, let, uh, just for our listening audience, let me give a little more background so they know why you deserve that moniker. Dr. Ralph is a research meteorologist focused on understanding the physical processes that create extremes and precipitation ranging from flood to drought, and on advancing associated observations, predictions, climate projections, and decision support tools. A primary talk has been atmospheric rivers and their role in mid-latitude precipitation. From 2001 to 2013, he was chief of the water cycle branch at NOAA's Earth System Research Lab in Colorado, and he's also managed NOAA's Science, Technology, and Infusion Program, and chaired NOAA's U.S. Weather Research Program Executive Committee, and led the creation of NOAA's Unmanned Aircraft Systems Program. So lots of work with NOAA, as you would expect, with a weather rock star. <laughs> in 2013, he moved to the University of California, San Diego, Scripps Institute of Oceanography, where he's developing the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes. Very appropriate, given our uh, current situation. A major goal through his career has been to better understand, monitor, and predict key elements of the global water cycle, including water vapor transport, precipitation, and runoff. Scientific understanding of atmospheric rivers, which are critical to both the global water cycle and to the distribution of precipitation and flooding in key parts of the world is a major thrust. So, Dr. Ralph, uh, tell us about your background and how you ended up at CSB Scripps. Yeah, hi, Will. Uh, thank you so much for uh, giving me a chance to talk uh, today. Um, you know, I got into meteorology as a teenager after moving from suburban Detroit to southern Arizona, uh, Nogales, in fact, and suddenly you could see the sky instead of just trees. But uh, that really, you know, got me excited about the topic of weather and how it made rain and floods and all that. I ended up uh, going to UCLA for grad school right there in your backyard back in the 80s mostly and uh, had a great education there, top-notch Department of Atmospheric Sciences, and I had a chance to learn more about California weather and West Coast weather, Uh, and then uh, went on to a job with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, uh, as a scientist in Boulder, Colorado. But I never really lost my uh, passion for West Coast weather and uh, and all that, and you know, I did some management and then some program management. But uh, at uh, UC San Diego and Scripps Institution of Oceanography, they've got a really amazing group of people and, and vision for the future to uh, link science and society. And there really was just a chance to uh, you know come west uh, to the coast and and uh, take a look at these storms that produce so much of the rain and snow and see if we could do uh, something to improve their uh, prediction and and uh, take advantage of the predictability that we, we, we know they have to a degree uh, and, uh, and see if we can help uh, with uh, education for young people to get a chance to explore their interest in science and technology. Well, I, I would also say that uh, working at uh, UCSB, especially uh, at, down at the Scripps Institution, the, the views and the, and the uh, climate uh, right around that campus are absolutely spectacular, so not a bad uh, place to work if uh, you need to go to the office every day. You look out over uh, La Jolla Cove and uh, all those beautiful 
beautiful views uh, from from that part of the world. If you could see me, you'd see a big smile because it's so true. In fact, <laughs> as I moved here, I thought uh, I, I had a little bit of a worry that it'd be a little bit distracting. But what I've discovered is, in fact, it's quite inspiring. It creates uh, it, it's, it's an environment that fosters creativity and deep thinking and discovery. Uh, it's just fantastic. Outstanding. Well, we're so uh, fortunate to have you there. Could you tell us a little bit more? I know you've uh, spoken, and, and uh, our next uh, guest uh, truly uh, described you as the rock star and, uh, in, in terms of a superstar of all of the knowledge in terms of the atmospheric river. So that's really uh, what I'm, uh, or and I think our, our listeners are going to be very interested to learn more about. If you could tell us a, a little bit more about at- atmospheric rivers and how, know, how long have we known about them and, and uh, why are they so important? Oh, great questions, and I feel like I need like a guitar riff or something to go with that rock star <laughs> thing, which I'm a little bit self-conscious about. But uh, we'll, we'll, have Rob, uh, um, we'll have Rob yeah. work on that for us. So. Yeah, you didn't tell me ahead of time. I would have had all the music ready. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, good, a good Zeppelin riff of some kind. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, uh, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, uh, many people in California actually know atmospheric rivers more than they might realize. Uh, many people grew up and who you know were from the region had heard about uh, you know the Pineapple Express as a form of storm you know that can produce a lot of rain in California you know and then the movie came around called the Pineapple Express which sort of stole that moniker but uh, as a scientist you know I had uh, had this experience in grad school at UCLA where um, I was there during some drought years but one year in particular and of course a nerdy weather guy has to have a rain gauge. Uh, I I collected about half of the total rain for the year fell in about 12 hours one year. It was about four inches of rain, and we got a total of about nine inches that whole year. And that night was just uh, you know very wet. And it really just reinforced to me how vital you know a couple of big storms are each year, you know, to providing water to the southwestern U.S. I'd seen it as a youngster in Arizona. There I saw it as a grad student at UCLA. And through my career, it, it has continued to just simply be a fascination. I started studying the storms that produced that rain. And, uh, in fact, it was a really interesting path. Back in the late 90s, there was a, a field experiment I led called CalJet. And we took Hurricane Hunter aircraft out into the storms during that big El Nino winter you know, to study a part of the storm we didn't really have a name for, uh, but we knew it was important. It's where the winds were strong at low altitude and the water vapor was very, you know, was very juicy. Uh, and where that hit the coast, you know, the forecasters already knew was where the action was in terms of precipitation and flooding. So we went out and flew those things and had a, a fantastic experience scientifically, got some data in to help with the forecasting, uh, and really got uh, a, a firsthand look at how these parts of the storms work. And as it happens, the very same year, a paper was published by some scientists at MIT uh, where they basically coined the term atmospheric river. And the paper was a top, a very uh, effective uh, scientific article, and it really caught my interest. And I realized that that moment, as soon as I read it, that that was exactly what we were flying through hmm. in 1998 in the, in the aircraft. So uh, the light bulb really went off for me at that point. And another thing happened right around that time, same year, basically, as a new satellite system went up. And, oh, my gosh, on the West Coast, we depend on satellite data over the ocean. Uh, and this data actually for the first time showed uh, the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere, you know, over the ocean. And these long, narrow ribbons 
of large water vapor content showed up in the data. And it turned out we flew through some of them, and it turned out they were the signature of atmospheric rivers. So we had a scientific discovery, we had a field experiment, and we had new satellite data, and it all sort of exploded in my head around 2002 that that's what we were looking at. Uh, and it turned out we quickly discovered how important they are to precipitation. You know, it's kind of funny, you, you know, we, we, we kind of know about atmospheric rivers at this point, and I guess there was a time when we didn't know, and that, now you just explained that um, moment in time when we really uh, discovered them and coined the term and everything, so that's interesting. Uh, so at this point, you know, we know more about it, and we can define it and scientifically study it. What ramifications of this atmospheric river are we undergoing in Western civilization, you know, on the floods, the droughts, the hydropower, the ecosystems, the economy. Now that we know more why it's raining and precipitating the way it is, how will that affect our understanding and, yeah. and living with it? Yeah, well, um, it's uh, there's a, a, a lot to say to that. Um, it's a good question. Uh, first of all, I'd, I'll point out that, you know, when we, when we first learned about these things about, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was quickly apparent that they were really vital to making heavy rain uh, when they hit shore. And it's because an, an atmospheric river is, is literally like a river in the sky, but it's water vapor instead of liquid. And when that part of the atmosphere, the atmospheric river also is very conducive to, uh, if, it, if the air hits the mountains, it easily goes up. Sometimes air, when it hits the mountain, it'll go around the mountain. But many people already know when air goes up, it cools and condenses the water and forms precipitation. So the atmospheric river condition itself is really primed to make heavy rain and snow. And uh, since we first started uh, working on this, we've come to realize that they're on average about 500 miles wide, about 2,000 miles long or even longer sometimes. And in a given spot, let's say you're standing in San Francisco or something, on average an AR when it's hitting that spot will last about 18 or 20 hours, maybe a day. But sometimes they last much longer. We've also started being able to count them and discover that there's about a dozen per year, maybe 15 per year will hit in Northern California. And like I said, each one lasts about a day. If you add up how much precipitation falls during those AR storms, we call atmospheric rivers, uh, I'll use AR for short. In some parts of Northern California, 40, even 50% of the annual precipitation will fall in you know, 10 or 12 ARs in a year. We've also learned that if, in fact, uh, we get too few of them, we can fall into drought. And if we get too many, we end up potentially in you know, a flood situation. And one of the reasons they're so effective at making precipitation is they carry massive volumes of water vapor. In fact, we've used the aircraft data. Imagine flying across an atmospheric river. You, know, you cross it about 500 miles and edge to edge. And we can measure with these sensors we drop from the plane called dropsons and they fall from like 30 or 40,000 feet where the airplane is down through the atmospheric river with a little parachute with uh, temperature, moisture, wind, and pressure, radio it back to the aircraft, and we keep track. And imagine it was a terrestrial river, and you were basically taking measurements of the stream flow at different positions across the terrestrial river. And you measure how much water is flowing down the river. Imagine mm -hmm. how much water is flowing from the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico at a given moment. It's a lot of water. It's one of the biggest rivers yeah. in the world. We've now learned from these aircraft data that in atmospheric rivers, on average, they're transporting 
25 Mississippi rivers worth of water vapor. So it's no wonder when they hit the mountains that they can dump a lot of rain and a lot of snow. So fundamentally, they really are rivers in the sky. How much is that compared to the Mississippi? Like, are we having atmospheric rivers that are similar to the size of the Mississippi? So the uh, an atmospheric river is you know vapor, so it's a few hundred miles wide, whereas you know liquid is much denser, and it's you know the Mississippi River is maybe a mile wide. But yeah. uh, okay. atmospheric rivers occur, you know, um, in many parts of the world, the, what we call the mid latitudes. So not so much in the cold polar regions, and not so much in the tropics, but sort of in between, like from, you know, Baja to Alaska, you know, uh, to uh, Anchorage or something would be a good way to visualize where atmospheric rivers hit the west coast of the U.S. They also hit the west coast of Europe, the west coast of South America. Sometimes they'll curl into the east coast of the U.S. and contribute to a blizzard, or they'll come out of the Gulf of Mexico into the Great Plains and feed into heavy, uh, you know, thunderstorms. Uh, So they're they're very uh, uh, much present over different parts of the world. And it turns out that a, a Pineapple Express uh, is a flavor of atmospheric river that happens to occur, you know, in a place where basically the air comes over uh, Hawaii at some point and then ends yeah, up, yeah. you know, the AR hits the West Coast. So I'm not getting to your question so much, but there's a little bit of information. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose that these have always occurred and we just have a better understanding now. It's not like they're all of a sudden uh, occurring now and they didn't in history, correct? It, there's always been atmospheric That's right. No, they, we, just, we, just, we just understand them better now. Absolutely. Yeah. They've been part of the atmosphere since time immemorial. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. And uh, when we, by learning more about them, we've uh, recently just calculated in a paper with uh, Gary Wick and other colleagues of mine we published a few years ago, we actually now can measure, you know, we can look at the forecast of ARs, and we can figure out where the predicted position is where the AR is going to, say, hit the coast. It might be San Francisco to Eureka, or it might be L.A. to San Diego, or it might be Seattle. So we can we can look at the forecast and say, okay, that's where the AR is predicted to make landfall, say, on, you know, Friday, April 7th. But then when the real April 7th comes around, we realize that the AR, instead of hitting, say, the Bay Area, hit L.A. In that case, we would be able to calculate the landfall position error. And it turns out that, on average, at about three days' lead time, there's plus or minus 400 kilometers, or call it 300 miles, of uncertainty in where the AR is going to hit. And remember, an AR is about 500 miles wide. So what that says is that about three days' lead time, we can see, most often, nowadays, we can see an AR is going to hit the West Coast somewhere, but we don't really know within plus or minus, you know, a few hundred miles about where it's going to hit. And then as the storm gets closer in time, uh, you know, that narrows down to maybe two or three hundred kilometers. But even just a day or two ahead, uh, there's still significant uncertainty in the landfall position. And remember, a city or a, a watershed in the West, are, you know, they're 50 or 100 kilometers in size. So, uh, you know, a three or four hundred kilometer error is a big error. An example is back, uh, what was that, maybe a week or two ago, there was a a late-season AR predicted to hit Southern California. In fact, the forecast was for it to hit Santa Barbara with 10 inches of rain forecast in about a day, uh, just above the area that had the terrible mudslide. And for, thank goodness, people were evacuated. 30,000 people were evacuated, I heard. Uh, And what happened was the AR, instead of hitting Santa Barbara, it 
wobbled north a little bit, and it ended up dumping 10 inches of rain on the Big Sur coast. Not very populated, beautiful area, of course, just south of Monterey. The area of Santa Barbara still got four or five inches, so it was a significant storm, but it didn't produce the 10 inches and mudslides that really could have happened. And that had, that uncertainty was still, you know, it was still uncertain just a day ahead, you know, whether it would hit Santa Barbara or somewhere else. Uh, so that's one of the problems we're working on with our science and our technology uh, to try to improve upon that. Um, just in, uh, to follow up on that, if I could, please, we're, we get uh, 12 to 15 of these uh, ARs a year in California, and each one of those has about uh, the equivalent of moisture of 25 times the Mississippi River. Is that correct? That's right. An average AR transports about that much water vapor. Now realize when it hits shore, it doesn't dump it all out. The atmosphere sure. isn't perfect at you know turning you know water vapor into rain, but you know even ten percent of that's a lot of water. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. As we saw with uh, most recently, as you just mentioned, around the Montecito area and all the devastation that that uh, yeah. was the cause there. How difficult, uh, I should say, it's certainly difficult as you just expressed predicting where these will go. What technologies are being uh, used to, to kind of fine-tune that? Or are there new things that are coming out that are going to help us give us uh, a better warning system, perhaps, or or to, to, to determine yeah. the amount of rainfall? What uh, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, great question. And, you know, part of the reason to create this new center here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography is to be able to explore those things and develop them. And there are a couple things happening. One is... Uh, you know, better observations of the atmospheric rivers as they hit shore uh, made by what we call uh, atmospheric river observatories. They're a type of radar, basically. And uh, the California Department of Water Resources teamed up with NOAA and Scripps to build and deploy uh, these sensors. So now we have a picket fence of these, about seven or eight of them, along the West Coast. And we can see the details of the AR when they hit shore. And that helps us see what uh, and think about what's going to happen you know, a few hours later, or a half a day later, farther inland. But the biggest advance is in our modeling of ARs, which is, you know, we, we use high-performance computing of big computers to uh, run uh, equations that represent the weather. And we, the way that works is the model has to start with the current condition in the atmosphere, and then the physics predicts what the condition of the atmosphere will be in the future. So you have to start with uh, an initial condition, and that's based heavily on observation. So we need observations to get the model running, and then the model goes forward in time out even up to a week or two, and we've learned that we often see these ARs show up in the model five or six days before they hit shore. We don't know exactly where they're going to hit yet or how strong exactly, but we start to get a hint that they're coming. And uh, the models go out as far as two weeks, but we've learned that you know past about six or ten days, we really can't trust the models to predict the ARs very well because, you know, they just don't have enough, you know, uh, enough uh, accuracy. But one of the reasons they don't have that accuracy is because of the lack of, or not lack, but the relatively limited observations we have for weather over the ocean. Like I said earlier, we really depend on the satellites. They're vital. We also have really unique measurements in the ocean called buoys, and they measure the ocean condition at the surface and all that. And those two combined are really the foundation of our global weather prediction, you know, in places for the west coast of the U.S., for example, where, you know, the weather usually comes west to east. 
in the winter, so we have to get the, the data over the ocean. But there's a real gap there in the current observing capability, and it's to measure the ARs properly. We're now trying out the idea of taking research aircraft offshore, aircraft that the nation has largely in place to uh, do this for hurricanes in the uh, for the East Coast and Gulf Coast in the you know, summer and fall. But now we're trying to use those same aircraft and the fantastic crews uh, to um, go out and measure ARs off the West Coast and get those uh, uh, drops on data I mentioned earlier into the weather prediction models to try to help improve the forecast of the AR landfall, uh, which is you know a good uh, thing to reduce hazard. And then there's a whole other story on, on how uh, ARs are really important to reservoir operation. So, well, so models, um, satellites, and aircraft. Yeah, so instead of more buoys or more satellites, just using these research aircraft, um, that are already deployed for hurricanes, uh, just kind of redeploy them for the West could really help us. Is that correct? It really could. Yeah, that's the idea. Uh, and we're very lucky to work with the U.S. Air Force uh, Weather Reconnaissance Squadron uh, and with NOAA's uh, Aircraft Operations Center uh, to have a chance to explore this idea. And we've partnered with you know, the best weather modeling groups in the world, including the National Weather Service, uh, the Navy, uh, uh, research centers, and also the European Center for uh, Weather Prediction, which has uh, really got the most accurate weather model globally. Uh, so we've really formed a, a top-notch team you know, to look into this, and our goal is to, uh, we flew six storms this year, uh, and we're uh, proposed to fly nine more next year, uh, and if we get enough of these data, uh, we'll be able to do the evaluation to see how best to use these aircraft uh, in the future. Dr. Ralph, well, thank I'd you just for like to say thank you, thank you for uh, all that fascinating information. Uh, in the couple of minutes left, uh, uh, is there a, a site, a website that our listeners could go to to perhaps learn more about atmospheric rivers and, and the incredibly great work that you're doing at the center? Well, certainly, uh, we have our center's website. It's uh, the letter C, the letter W, the number three, and the letter E. No one else is foolish enough to have that acronym, so CW3E, just Google that, and you'll find it. Um, but I would like to just add one other acronym, and it's uh, F-I-R-O, for Forecast Informed Reservoir Operations. And what we're discovering is basically that if we can predict these ARs well enough, it may enable you know sort of a 21st century way of operating existing reservoirs that can improve water supply reliability. Think of that as a drought mitigation uh, approach and potentially reduce uh, flood risk. But that's a story for another time, I would guess. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dr. Ralph, I would just like to say thank you for coming west from um, Colorado. I remember you saying that you know part of the reason you did that was because there was frustration in getting the things done that you're getting done now. So I'm glad you found a, a good, productive environment and uh, help us predict these darn storms. Who knows? Maybe you'll well, even manipulate you. them in the in the future. Are you? Um, <laughs> you'll, you'll just. We need the river over here in California this week, and we need it to uh, hit landfall down there next week. That was going to be my that, question because uh, you know we had people on who did uh, cloud seeding, and they can oh, make yeah. it rain. And so uh, the, the the only question I was going to have for Dr. Ralph was, do you think in the future we're going to be able to control? storms where we can prevent storms or manipulate them you think the science down the road will be able to do those things and is somebody working on those things 
yeah, I don't see that as a plausible outcome anytime soon. Um, people are you know, very creative and thinking all sorts of things, and I think it's good for people to have a chance to think about them. I'm not, you know, personally very uh, confident that, you know, controlling these storms is really in our future. Cloud seeding has a long history. Uh, some of it seems to be, you know, uh, not very effective. Other times maybe it is. We've learned a little bit more, you know, about how that might be work, that might work better in the future. But you've got to have the storm in the right place, and, uh, you know, to make that work. Right. Uh, and uh, it looks like, you know, I had a, a colleague who spent a decade working on trying to understand how cloud seeding might impact the uh, improved, you know, precipitation in the Sierra. And his conclusion was very powerful. It was Mother Nature's already really efficient. <laughs> Not 100%, <laughs> right. but really efficient. So, and don't mess with her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't mess with Mother Nature, yeah. <laughs> Well, great. We we, uh, we thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, we're going to take our we're up for our, our little commercial break, and then we'll be back with our next guest again, Doctor Ralph. On behalf of the Water Zone, Ingi and Paul, and myself, we thank you very much for for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for thank the opportunity. You. Good day. Hey, thank you. Hey, stick around. Thank we're going to be back in a minute. Well, welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone, and uh, I should have asked Dr. Martin. It's now pouring here. I wonder if we're having an AR session here. But uh, anyway, I'll turn it back to Ingi and Paul for their next guest, and uh, it'll be a very interesting topic he's going to be talking about. Thanks, Rob. Uh, our next guest is uh, uh, Tom Phillips. Tom, are you with us? I hope to be here. Excellent. <laughs> You're coming in loud and clear. Thank you. Welcome, uh, Welcome Tom. to the Water Zone. Pleasure to be here. Uh, as a way of introducing you to our listening audience, let me uh, briefly uh, read your uh, uh, bio, if I could, please. Uh, Tom is currently the executive strategist for the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, or, or commonly known as uh, MWD. He works out of MWD's uh, capital office in Sacramento, where he helps with public affairs, local and state outreach, as well as drafting key communications for the district. His current assignment for MWD relates to the policy and political challenges of Northern California's Sacramento San Joaquin Delta, which we've talked about before on the show, and to communicate the district's water supply challenges within its six-county service area. For 10 years, Tom wrote editorial on water issues for the Sacramento Bee, where he won the 19... Uh, or excuse me, the 2005 Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing. Prior to that, he was on the staff of San Jose Mercury News, graduated from Northwestern University School of Journalism in 1983. Welcome to the Water Zone, Tom. It's a it's great a pleasure to, to be here. Thank you so much. Tell us uh, a little bit, if you would, please, uh, uh, more about your background, your history, and how you became so involved with water and water issues. I'd be happy to do that, but you know, first I want to say your your previous uh, person on this uh, on your show, uh, Martin Ralph, is just one of the total rock stars in, in water. What he's doing <laughs> is so incredibly important. If he continues to do the Lord's work and figures out where these atmospheric rivers are heading and how intense they may be. And if we someday will know if they're going to hit my river on the American River or the Yuba River to the north or the McCollumy to the south, boy, we're going to have such an amazing array of management decisions that we, in terms of whether to release water because we think a big event is coming 
or whether to keep water behind a reservoir because we don't think it's coming. It's just an incredible array of management decisions that we could have based on better science. And he is chasing that science, and he's at the cutting edge, and we're learning something, it seems, every storm. I don't know if he's still on, but I'm so excited by what he's doing and implications of of what he's doing. It just kind of makes me tingle because we just (laughs) desperately need better science uh, to to manage things in California, and I just kind of applaud what he's doing, and uh, I wish him the best of luck. And I would say that, uh, you know, what what draws you to water is is stuff like what he's doing. I mean, water has everything. Water has science. Water is law. Water is history. Water's engineering, water's politics, water's incredible regional and cultural differences. And although I've been at it for, oh, I don't know, maybe, I don't, I don't even want to know, want to say how many years I've been doing this, maybe 25 <laughs> years, I, I feel like I'm a student every day, and I learn something every day, and I'll never consider myself an, an expert in this field. Uh, I'm, I, I try to learn something every day, and that's really, I mean, I was a, I'm kind of a recovering smart aleck newspaper reporter. I uh, my most of my career was in newspapers uh, from uh, 1983, uh, starting at the San Jose Mercury, to about uh, 2006 at the Sacramento Bee. And but I I'm trying to translate those same skills into uh, a, a water district setting where um, my job is. Where I see my job is trying to understand what's happening on the issues facing metropolitan, whether it's the evolving uh, situation on the Colorado River, where we're at 47% of average runoff so far this year, to the uh, Rock'em Sock'em world of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, and how to um, communicate both what's happening in the Delta and metropolitan's ideas of how to advance uh, reforms for both the water system and the ecosystem, and Southern California's own water water situation uh, is, is, has its own challenges. We're looking to exploring whether to build the largest recycling project uh, in Los Angeles County, as an example. So I've uh, been working with Metropolitan for 10 years and trying to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of everything that, that uh, we're doing. And as you said, I, I do, I, I am out of Sacramento. I am a Sacramento resident of 26 years, and I work for Southern California, which makes me bilingual of sorts or or multicultural (laughs) or or something. My job is to help Metropolitan communicate, whether it's to our fellow board members, general public, the legislators, uh, you. It's a a great job. It's like having a ringside seat in in water history and trying to communicate it to a, a very diverse audience of 19 million people, six counties. I have 26 member agencies, 37 or 38 board members. It's a, it's a obviously a very large institution. It's the largest regional government uh, of its kind in the United States and perhaps the world. I haven't really just figured out if China has something bigger, but we're a very unique large entity at Metropolitan where we are we bring in water from the uh, Northern California and the Colorado River for six counties service area, 5,500 square miles, 19 million people. So it's uh, it's quite an interesting uh, place to work, and it's been a lot of fun. 
Well, for water geeks like us, it sounds like a great job, <laughs> and, we're, and we're glad that you're doing it. Um, Marty, this is Ingi, and I'd like to learn a little more about the uh, Pulitzer Prize that you won in 2005 for your deep research editorials on reclaiming California's flooded Hetch Hetchy Valley. What, tell us about that uh, and your time as an editorial writer. Um, I, I'd, I'd be happy News. to. I, I'm happy to. It's a uh... It's, it, I'm kind of a little flummoxed as to why that series of articles got a distinction out of that, out of that illustrious panel of judges uh, based out of New York City. Um, I, starting in 1995, uh, I, be, I did leave the newsroom at the B to the somewhat ivory tower of the editorial pages where I, be, I became one of their editorial writers. And among my assignments for the, the Sacramento Bee editorial page, for about 10 years, was water. And it was a complete honor to write on behalf of the bee uh, opinions on water. The previous year, frankly, was a very difficult, challenging year on water or where I had been investigating a variety of water districts throughout Southern California, and including my current employer, about just looking at uh, expenses of, of their, their leaders and their board members was really instigated by um, a local water district here in Sacramento that had a, where their leadership had been paying themselves bonuses outside of payroll. Another water district was used district funds to golf at Pebble Beach. It was one of those chapters in a life as a journalist where you're really digging into a bunch of public records. Two of the folks locally ended up going to federal prison because of the, oh. uh, the, the IRS issues. You, you, if you ever want to pay yourself a salary outside of uh, and not have it taxed on the government payroll, I, I promise you the Internal Revenue Service will figure it out, and they won't <laughs> like it. So I, I don't oh recommend that as a, as a, as a course of, uh, of self-enrichment for anyone in government. And to be honest, after that, I wanted to do something really outside the box uh, uh, and was very interested in the, the Tuolumne River, where the San Francisco has its um, uh, reservoir in the in Yosemite's Hetch Hetchy Valley. And I, we were wandering way outside the box uh, with some editorials suggesting different ways to, to manage the water supply on that river to see if there was some way to provide water to the city of San Francisco where you did not need a, a, a reservoir in, in the Hetch Hetchy Valley in Yosemite. It was a, a really interesting learning exercise. I must say that all the water districts on that river, Tuolumne Irrigation District, Modesto Irrigation District, San Francisco, PUC, all really smart, class act people, totally enjoyed it, unexpectedly won this Pulitzer in $10,000 and then turned around and remodeled the kitchen for $35,000. So I'm not sure I, <laughs> how much I ended up ahead, but it, 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 was a, it was a fun year after a very kind of challenging year looking at credit card statements and other things. So, and, uh, so that was life in 2005. Just a, a quick follow-up question, Tom. In, you said you're a little bit surprised by the recognition of that series of articles on Hetch Hetchy. Are there other things that you've written uh, editorially that you're say, more proud of or think may have could have received uh, the, the attention of the Pulitzer Group than your Hetch Hetchy work? I don't know how to react to that. I would say that, in my mind, an editorial writer following water in California, particularly at a, at a paper like the Sacramento Bee, 
I found myself, the more I did it, the more I realized how hard this issue was and how important it was on any given day to praise a government agency or an individual for being courageous and doing something. And the, the power of praise was very important. And, and also, you know, criticism uh, when it was due, but trying to be somewhat of a centrist force to try to encourage all of these different stakeholders to, to make progress on an issue that's so difficult and so complex. And that's probably pretty inside baseball and may not win you an award, but I, and that's fine. But I, I think at the end of the day, that's what I found the most rewarding, which was trying to follow any of these really mind-numbing, difficult issues, whether it's, you know, the, what to do about conveyance in the Delta, making progress on the, the Colorado River with seven states involved. I, I, I personally found that the, the, the most rewarding after, after doing it for, for many years. And I'm honored and flattered to have won the Pulitzer for kind of the one time in 10 years I, I wandered outside the box, but I, and I think that thinking outside the box on water can be helpful, but also I think day in and day out, it's realizing how hard it is, how many government agencies there are involved, how many different mm. regions and stakeholders and perspectives are involved and in trying to solve some of these very tough issues, particularly uh, the Sierra, managing the Sierra and the Delta in ways that work for both the environment and the economy. Sure. Um, speaking of kind of an outreach and thinking outside the box, I know that you're currently on the board of the Water Education Foundation, which is an important uh, impartial nonprofit organization with some very influential members. Could you tell our listening audience a little bit about that organization and, and your involvement, but also the mission of that group, please? Yeah, the, the Water Education Foundation in some ways is the Switzerland of uh, of of California water. It is the one, it is a, a, a treasured institution that it, its entire job is to try to figure out how to disseminate accurate, impartial, unbiased information to explain what's happening in the Delta, what's happening on the Colorado River, what's happening in the watershed, explaining water quality issues. I've been on the board for uh, probably about eight years now and it's been an honor to, to be on it. And they're also evolving as an organization where, you know, not too long ago, most of their pub most important publications were printed. Uh, Western Water, they're uh, a quarterly magazine that has can have a 5,000-word article that really dives very deep into an issue, whether it's desalination, new ideas of, of water rights for the environment, and the, you know, the foundation is you know, embracing and realizing that we as consumers are now consuming information in a very different way than we did 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're reading long things on our iPhones or our iPads or our computers. We're the, so they are evolving to have more of their information online. And their board is very diverse. Uh, it, has, it has big urban water districts like mine on the board, agriculture districts. Canna Michaels, I think, was might, might have been on your show. Some really super smart farmer uh, in the Los, Los Banos area. Very tech-savvy fellow himself, more savvy about that than I am. He's on the board. Environmental groups are on the board. Uh, 
PG&E's on the board. Uh, it, so it's it's really it's a it's a it's a great uh, organization and a, a a great source of information. It is a great organization. Um, we had Rita on the show as well about a year and a half ago. Rita Sudman and yeah, fantastic job that you folks are doing there. And thank you, thank you for uh, your service there. I don't know yeah, how Rita, you have time she, with. I'm sorry. Yeah, she's a total force in nature, Rita. Uh, she's uh, yeah. she's technically retired, but I right. see her around town twisting arms for for money, just like she was when she was the head of the foundation. Jennifer Bowles has been uh, the head for a couple of years, but it's been it, it, it's it's a great institution in yeah. in water, and it's important to have a, something like the foundation as a as a place for news because as you might have recognized in water. We don't necessarily have a shared set of facts all the time, and to be able right. to go to a, a foundation and and look at its information is really helpful. It's super helpful. We're very lucky to have that as 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 an institution. Here in I I I totally agree. And th- again, thank you for your service because I know your job as uh, executive strategist for MWD has got to be. Incredibly challenging, and as you were saying, it uh, you know water involves science and law and culture and history and all sorts of different things, and it's it's great that you bring that to the table for for Matt. Maybe you could share with us a little about what the highlights or the challenges or maybe even the downfalls are of, with your current position. I'd be I'd be happy to. Uh, I want to do one last plug for the Water Ed Foundation. If you're Oh, listening good. and you want to go to their website, just go to watereducation.org, and you can see their the some of their uh, materials online, see their upcoming tours and events, and and it's a it's a great place to to start. And you can also sign up for their five days a week. They do a, a summary of of water news in California and the West uh, that you can get for free in your in your in basket. So if you're interested more in the foundation just go to watereducation.org and, uh, and i'll piggyback on that and say that the the tours are fantastic i did the uh, bay delta tour a few years back and they do an incredible job with tours so yeah thanks okay go ahead <laughs> well in terms of what what what's on metropolitan's plate right now you you might have seen in the news a couple of weeks ago that my board of directors decided to make a historic investment in the proposed uh, water system solution up in the Delta known as California Water Fix. We, that process has been uh, going on for 11 years, 11-some years, and we kind of hit a fork in the road whether we were going to try to find we as a collective group of water districts that have been working on this, and they, rank, they span everywhere from Silicon Valley to the San Joaquin Valley, to the Mojave Desert, to Coachella, to my district, to try to figure out whether we were going to move, try to move the full project together, or do it in stages. And as the full project, it has been to build three new intakes in the North Delta on the Sacramento River, transport about half of the water supplies of the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project through twin tunnels to the existing aqueduct system in the Southern Delta, or whether we were going to do it in pieces, um, in, a, in a phased approach. And uh, at, at, at this hour, 
our agriculture partners in the Central Valley Project have yet to figure out how to finance what they would like to finance. And my board was faced with the decision as to whether they wanted to finance a staged approach or whether they felt comfortable uh, underwriting the balance of the full project. And this is a project that's uh, estimated at about $17 billion. And my board decided to uh, invest uh, approximately $11 billion towards doing it. That was a, probably the most important vote that that the, my board has done since they voted in November of 1960 to join the State Water Project. The historic oh. vote, historic mm-hmm. investment. Waterfix is not across the finish line by any means. Still have other permits to do, other financial uh, things to to work out, but this really brought it significantly closer, resolved mm-hmm. uh, a, a lot of that, uh, of the remaining financial issues. And that is kind of front and center on Metropolitan's plate right now, which is explaining the importance of the Delta, explaining uh, the, the rationale of the board's investment decision. You know, one way to think about this, um, I'm sure some of your readers, listeners have Remember the term peripheral canal? 